Hello and welcome to the Xenothesis podcast. Uh, my name is Richard Acton and uh, my co-host is... Michael Glinka. Hello everyone. Uh, we're covering uh, chapters four and five of part one Dawn of uh, book one... Uh, sorry, part one Womb of book one Dawn of Octavia Butler's Xenogenesis trilogy. And in these chapters, you've got the initial plot summary for, for the first chapter, haven't you, Michael? Yes, yes. So yeah. um, maybe we start with the predictions first from the last oh, yes. last time. Yes, and your then predictions I'll go from the previous episode. Yeah. So my in my chapter three, I said these predictions. So Lilith finally gets to know more about Taya and the capabilities of uh, Onkali. Mm-hmm. Um the second prediction was we learn more about their technology and three the chapter ends with Lilith finally being led to freedom mm-hmm. and uh i think that was pretty accurate yeah i i agree that's uh all three of those are pretty spot on um so let me introduce the ch- chapter four and then um since it's a very short short chapter to all listeners mm. we'll um, go quickly through it and then we'll go to chapter five because there's a lot of things to describe there Yes, yeah, chapter four is relatively uneventful. Yeah, so chapter four, as I said, was short. We started by finding out how long more it will take to leave for her to leave the confinement. At the very beginning, she says mm-hmm. eleven more meals, and mm-hmm. we find that she's getting used to Daya. You know, as he's making his rounds around the cell. You know, he's moving around, sleeping on the bed. Sort of, she's. Um, and at some point, he tries to bribe her like a child by giving her a banana, you know, which, which worked because so far she was being given a tasteless food. So she was really, she could really um, yes. um, enjoy that, um, the, the difference, uh, something different and colorful. Mm. Um, but when she asked him what, where, she got, where he got it from, he refused to respond to, to her questions. Yeah, that seems to be a general pattern with them, right? They just... Like if you ask them something they don't want to answer, they just sort of sit there and I mean wait you out. He said at the very beginning he won't say anything on the, until they leave the confinement. Mm. So I guess he he really knows how to stick to his uh, own um, word. Yeah, they're patient. And um, at some point he takes off his jacket to and show us that he has more sensory tent- tentacles, but Liv doesn't find them repulsive, but just ugly. And eventually he says that, you know, he can breathe underwater thanks to possible guilt-like orifices that he has. Uh, but And we find that he can sting with the tentacles he has, that uh, only the Uloi don't have the poison, but the one, the other um, the sexes in his um, species do. And the poison basically works by dissolving um, the insides of the creature which is similar to what spiders do, where they, when they bite it, they basically dissolve and they drink it. So, uh, But that was originally what he described when the original, I think, his ancestors, if I remember correctly, that's what they did. You know, they, they um, yeah, hunted think, things. Yeah. They had some distant ancestors that were uh, hunters that used these tentacles to catch stuff mm. underwater, which is a, an, an interesting origin for their species. You get a bit more about their biology. You mentioned nearly amphibious, so hmm. I guess uh, it's a different source of sort of um, the 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 ancestors, like compared to us being monkeys. Hmm. So, yeah, apparently they also require slightly less atmospheric oxygen than humans. But this is interesting because um, I read somewhere I remember a long time ago that 
when the concentration of the oxygen was higher on Earth in the initial in early stage uh, stages when Earth was forming, because of the higher concentration of the oxygen in the atmosphere, um, everything was just bigger. Yeah, that actually it was quite a long while after the initial formation. Like very early on, we were kind of super high carbon dioxide, and then there was um, the the reason the oxygen got super high eventually because like initially we had um, some uh, you know, early photosynthetic organisms that were producing oxygen as a byproduct and that brought it up to kind of reasonable levels and then the development of larger plants especially woody plants caused the real increase where we had super high oxygen levels and you could have things like dragonflies with foot and a half or more wingspans um, because the the diffusion of the oxygen could actually get through to their their core tissues um, because you know there's a higher tension gradient with more of it in the atmosphere that occurred because of so much of the carbon being pulled out of the atmosphere into the woody trees and then the reversion took place after fungi developed the ability to break down a compound called lignin which meant that a huge amount of trapped carbon in dead trees was released okay well there you go everyone this is a very brief but condensed uh, description why uh, but it also brings the question because if they require less oxygen, wouldn't that mean that you know, like I mean, initially the, their ancestors would be smaller than what, for example, the current Oncalia? Because mm. I mean, um, Chitaya is supposed to be very tall, much taller than Lilith was, and I was just wondering if the uh, ancestors then maybe um, the, you know, the size of them, um, prior to. Um, all of that, you no, know, whatever evolution they went through, um, made them bigger. Perhaps it just represents more efficiency. Right? Maybe they've um, managed to optimize that aspect of their biology with their genetic engineering skills. I guess so. But anyway, um, let's finish this off. And this is literally the end of the chapter where he finally brings her an orange and once Lilith and he realize that there is no more panning in her, he decides mm -hmm. to let her out. And that's the end of the chapter. Yep, that's it. Yeah. Which was quite brief. Ends with Lilith being led to some degree of freedom as uh, as we see. Yeah. So I've made the predictions for chapter 5 just before I started reading it. So mm -hmm. I put Liv will meet more aliens, uh, maybe the leaders or at least Daya's family. Uh, mm. She will possibly meet other humans and uh, we will learn more about what happened the last 250 years. Mm. And now thinking about this, after reading the chapter 5, I need to say, oh, was I wrong uh, in some of these aspects? Especially when I mentioned the leaders thing, it was like yeah, not not really the leaders. Uh, that well, that we it's implied that Steyer's family will be met kind of in the next chapter. There's yes, kind of build up yes. to meeting Steyer's family, so you're a little early on that, but but on the right track. Um, not meeting any other humans just yet. We do sort of learn a bit more about what what's happening, or at least what's the current situation. Yeah. Not a huge amount of, about what's happened over the last 250 years, just a, a couple of little details. But, yeah. yeah, so I wonder... Well, anyway, so maybe let's mm. get into the chapter 5. Um, unless you want to discuss more about the whole oxygen per issue. No, I think, I think we're, we're good there. Okay, 
So um, this is chapter five, everyone. Um, Chitaya opens the entrance the first time in a long time. Lilith um, can see color and light. Um, we are told that the opening spreads out as uh, as if flesh was moving. And when she prompted about it, Daya says, yes, the ship is alive. Hmm. Yeah. So that entire room that she was in this whole time was part of basically a tree size, well, a building sized tree, I suppose, would be a what she initially perceives it as. Yeah. A sort of a huge living thing. Uh, which can apparently shift shapes as required by the Oankali. Yeah, so well, he says everything that was uh, alive, except for some of the plumbing, uh, hmm. which is interesting, cause, but anyway. Um, hmm. And then Liv can see some distant hills and trees, some creatures with maybe six or ten legs um, through that opening and... Um, when asked, uh, when she's asked to come out, because initially she's a bit hesitant, um, mm. she retreats like, and it's descri- as described in exactly in the book, a zoo animal that has been shut up for so long that it, the cage had become its home. Yeah, so Stai's approach to getting her to come out, I thought was also interesting because he just he sort of needles her about it. It's like you, you, you're too afraid to come out. There's a, a little bit of understanding of human psychology. Well, uh, he was he studied well, didn't the, he? After the yeah, um, mm. but finally, you know. We that sort of prompt. Uh, she realizes what he's doing. That he's sort of pushing her to um, to come out, and she finally mm-hmm. overcomes the fear and comes out and of that opening. And as Richard mentioned, that that the cage she was part was part of like a gigantic tree or a pillar um, that um, also produced the tasteless but fully nutri- nutritional food that um, Lilith was eating all this time, necessary for her to survive. And um, we learned that the, the diet was actually designed, um, uh, as told by Chitaya, to not to encourage cancer to occur, meaning mm. that um, it was lacking any of those reactive chemicals that would induce mutations. Mm. As well as in the previous chapter, we were told that her genome itself was um, changed to stop cancer taking place. Yeah, I think the, the sort of implication was that they had a effectively a cancer-suppressive diet that they were giving her before they'd kind of confirmed that the gene therapy um which it is confirmed that they used the manipulation of her genes there um had taken place well i was uh, thinking actually a bit uh, opposite like instead of suppressing the cancer it was more like not inducing it so for example everyone um uh, listening to us um i have a um two links i'll provide latent references but basically um about the possible carcinogens. So chemicals that stimulate mm-hmm. cancer are called carcinogens. And on the United Kingdom's um, health service, the National Health NHS National Health Service um, uh, website is talking about, uh, there's a web link about processed foods that are more and more prevalent in our diets and that contain a lot of um, stabilizers and um, chemicals that sort of to preserve the, for the, um, them to last longer. But these chemicals have been linked to um, causing cancer or being one of the, not causing, but being one of the um, 
Um, Potential aggravating agents. Yes, I yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, oh, there's kind of a there's a lot of ongoing controversy about that kind of thing. And if you, you draw a Venn diagram of all the things that have been claimed to be carcinogens and all the things that have been claimed to be preventative of cancer, there's a decent overlap between those two things. So um, there's an element of uh, take some of that with a pinch of salt. When yeah. It comes. Whenever you will have claims about the preventative or causative nature of these things consider the quality of the evidence and um consider the statistical nature of those things right it's only it's tipping the probability one way or another and there are other factors <laughs> well i think there. it's also the fact that um it's it's the idea of you know excess of things right oh yes it's, yeah the whole everything in moderation yeah so mm. in any understanding of anything right anything can be poisonous to us you know if you take like if you took a glass of pure of salt like table salt you use for cooking right and you just took and ate the whole glass right i'm talking about the whole glass straight away if you managed to somehow gobble up the vomit uh, the response you would die simply because yeah. the water uh, would be sucked in and your whole system would be disrupted like just simple glass of salt right and it, but this is sort of an ex, uh, excessive example of what I'm trying to say is that anything in moderation, as long as we know the understanding of like the concentrations we can uptake, it should be fine. Hmm. That, that, I mean, there's a I think it was Paracelsus had a saying that's like um, dose and timing make the poison or something to that effect. Yeah, right? yeah, so absolutely. something we've known for a while. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, it's there are some things on this world that are super poisonous, like botulin. Uh, botulinus poisoning right this that i think like a few micrograms of this compound would probably kill uh, not probably but it's been calculated it can kill the whole human population right all seven almost eight billion people in the world right this is i'm not joking this is a serious thing right and the the challenge is evenly distributing it adequately so that we can get <laughs> enough for that to yeah everyone. but That's still the, it's it's yeah. capable of that mm. so i i would say that mm. if anything um we have to take care so I think this is interesting mm. aspect of like what they. Go on, go on. On the on the point about um, as opposed to just being um, not carcinogens, but also stuff that might be actively preventative. So, for example, um, curmer, uh, curcumin rather, the, and an ingredient in or a component of the the spice seasoning to turmeric, is known to be um, suppressive of bowel cancer, for example. Um, in moderately large dosages but you know if it's part of the diet then you know there's population-wide studies of areas where it's a prevalent component of the diet and that they have substantially reduced uh, population levels of, of bowel cancer and the mechanism by which it acts um or the many mechanisms by which it acts <laughs> i should say <laughs> there's a lot of them um are quite well known and biologically characterized so you know, that there's some of that stuff that has pretty sound scientific basis yeah, I mean, so I think this uh, aspect of some things that are positive for our diet, so, you know, a lot of um, fresh vegetables, um, fruits that basically fresh produce and some compounds as um, uh, rich in and stuff like that. Um, you know, the one thing great about current world is that we have access to so many um, different cultures everywhere hmm. 
and especially being exposed to the diets and their aspect. And I think the food-wise, I think it's um, very important to make note of that because a lot of things that we are usually are not present in, for example, our um, the, the land we live on, are available somewhere else and might have some positive effects. Um, yeah, there's that, that whole discipline of, uh, what is it, it's like ethnobotany or ethnopharmacology or something to that effect where um, you know, studying the um, effectively like folk remedies from different um, populations that have been isolated in, in different you know, locations around the world and you know, testing to figure out whether or not some of those um, like traditionally known remedies have genuine bases in... in um, modern medicine is an interesting field well i think well i mean a lot of compounds we um use nowadays you know come a lot from plants or just in general from the biology you know present there the origins of many modern drugs i mean the, the um, aspirin all that kind of stuff it um it's effectively just it, the only reason it's not ethnobotany is because it's european in origin so it doesn't, you know, we don't, we don't put it in the other bucket, as it were. Because um, it's the same, yeah, it's a folk remedy, but it was in the same place where we went on to develop uh, like the, the modern medicine framework. So Yeah, but the whole concept of the whole, the, um, the um, using those, um, the concept of using all those uh, nature-derived compounds um, mm. is important right so it's quite distinctive because we have to distinguish because a lot of um nowadays uh, medicine uh, I, I no so, sorry a lot of the natural natural sources of the medications can get a bad rep because they're hmm. linked with homeopathy okay yeah and, and other that's scientific yeah and that's very unscientific and you know homeopathy itself and all of that stuff related to it is so uh, absolutely unscientific right so it has no right to be on equal level but a lot of things present in nature are um beneficial for us and we can mm. learn a lot from it and you know curmarin for the cancer and recently i've learned about the manuka honey which blew my mind, to be honest, everyone. I'll link some references where basically it was found to be incredible for wound healing and just generally for irritable um, bowel syndrome or um, it is being really uh, successful to helping, uh, aiding it. So I think there's a lot of that uh, and there's more out there that we haven't discovered yet that definitely will be um, beneficial. One of the things that sets apart a lot of those kind of natural compounds in that context is that they tend to be very multi-target, multi-effect kind of um, compounds. Um, we, find, we find it with, with turmeric uh, or curcumin. I was just looking, we were looking at a paper before this, and it, it affects a huge number of different pathways in the way that it uh, inhibits cancer. But the drugs that we design deliberately these days, very narrow in their effects. Mm because we want to control what they do and we don't want side effects. Exactly. But that um the broadness of the effect of some of these compounds aspirin is another one that's you know it's effective in a lot of different ways but it's way way too broad in its effects. Um to a lot of those things that are natural remedies we never get approved in the conventional drug um pipeline these days because they just like could have all kinds of effects we don't know. Uh so there's a there's a kind of there's a challenge there in how we go about designing stuff that's effective 
by intervening in multiple pathways and also not a problem because of its side effects in multiple pathways it's it's bring it links back to the chapter uh, to the previous recording we've discussed about uh, why um biology is so um difficult is because of the variables the, all the possible mm. variables available for us and we need to bear in mind that you know in medicine it is one of the sciences is that we have to remove those variables so that's why a lot of drugs are very directed and they don't heal everything there's no remedy for all basically mm. that's what i'm trying to say oh yeah mm. but maybe let's continue with the chapter um, yes because there's a lot of we have to go through and there's, <laughs> yeah, we there's gonna be a lot of discussion like rabbit hole on drug design <laughs> and how multi-targets can escape different yeah okay yeah let's, let's not go too far off on the tangent so yeah. The next, so we follow with that we learned that um, Lilith uh, will be the first one to be sent to Earth, uh, a mm-hmm. wild planet full of flora and fauna, um, pure of uh, bef- much purer than it was uh, before she was um, uh, taken, and before the world uh, World War, and Daya tells her that before that happens, um, she needs to stay with his family and to do work. And we're told mm-hmm. that she will. The work will involve helping other awakened humans to adjust to the alien Onkali. Um, she will be taught survival skills um, because there's nothing left on the planet, and Onkali will not give them anything except for simple tools. And in fact, Taya says that um, a lot of things that the survival. Um, skills that maybe some other humans possess may not apply anymore because of the changes that Onkali have caused in the environment. And I think a little bit of the residual radiation from the um, uh, nuclear war also had some effects that's kind of implied there. Yeah, yes, of course. So the, I think this is the the also another implication that the radiation, there's still some radi- residual radiation um, from the nuclear weapons and then, of course, furthermore, we learn also that the Onkali destroy what was remaining of our society, of our civilization, and that the new group of humans uh, will have to build everything again from scratch. And that prompts a anger in Lilith, um, because, you know, how dare they do such a thing? But um, as they're walking, their conversation continues um, um, so we'll come back to this because this is something it's interwined with the rest of the chapter. Um, okay, yeah, we'll loop back to the destruction of what remains of human civilization. Yeah. So we are told more about the ship. Uh, it's an alive org- organism that stays mostly dormant, although it can be intelligent and be stimulated chemically to perform more functions than you, that means Lilith, would have the patience mm. to listen to. Um, yeah. the ship has an affinity towards Don Cali and as they can't survive without it and it can't survive without them um, the ship as we are told was grown by Chitaya's ancestors and he himself is now growing one and we also learn more about the families or tribes if you can call them like that in the Onkali species mm. the Dinso the aliens that will stay on earth until they're ready to leave generations from that point Toat, the aliens that will leave with the ship that Lilith is currently on, and the Akjai, the aliens that will leave on the new grown ship that Chitaya is involved growing. Yeah, 
and I just wanted to point out for a moment that these ships are huge, evidently, because no, and they have this this symbiotic relationship with them. But that when Lilith first comes out of the cell, she's like, "There's a sky and there's trees, and that there's no kind of sense of enclosed space that she's experiencing there. It's just like there's this massive. She perceives there to be a sky." Right, so presumably the like there's a ceiling. It's, it's like hills illuminated. and everything. So uh, yeah, it yeah. must be a massive, gigantic um, organism, uh, hmm. which which is I think a fascinating kind of sci-fi idea, right? And and a ship as kind of a symbiotic organism that has a relationship to its uh, passengers. But where do they get all that biomass for that? That's that's my question. But we'll come back to that. I think it's, yes, I, I've 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 noted it myself, but like I still it blows my mind. Um, yeah. and then Taya tells Lilith that him and his family are all dinsel, that they'll stay on Earth with her, and he won't see any of the other Onkali ever again. Maybe his gen, uh, maybe his descendants, but not him, not him himself. And we learned that he has a memory when asked about, you know, because there'll be mythology by the time when they all leave. But he said that actually the memory of all the previous divisions in their population is ingrained in their genes. Yeah, they seem to have this transgenerational memory, which is fascinating, right? Uh, that's a whole interesting concept. I was trying to think about the um, possible sort of relation that it, like, in on earth what what could be sort of relate to that right what what could um, but i couldn't think of anything like i mean there are some um memories that for example some animals have when they're born like turtles when they they hatch on this particular beach and then they go off and they swim around for mm. 50 years and then at the time of um, reproduction they go back to that specific beach right but it's still not the same yeah. thing it's not an it's not a transgenerational transfer of information, right? That's um yeah. And the the only thing that kind of approaches it is well, there's a whole thing in my field about epigen I'm an epigeneticist, um, and there's this there's notions of intergenerational and transgenerational transmission of information, but um I'm kind of in the camp of there's not as much to it as people think there might be. Um any effects that there are in the whole transgenerational epigenetics thing are pretty small we don't really have anything that's analogous to the transfer of like certainly not something on the level of memories and mm. mm. um, when it comes to the like the there's this whole notion of um like the innate ability to acquire certain skills and that definitely seems to be um there's an element of that, that that's true when it comes things like language acquisition and so on our brains uh, structures are that you know result from through developmental programming and so on our our genes have a predisposition to acquire certain um skills and certain structures but they require environmental stimulus to do that right it's not a direct mm, memory of yes. something perceived before um and this kind of implies uh, that effectively they have the ability to transmit memory down generations in a manner that is um almost direct right they have some means of serializing that memory into some bit of data that they can pass down i mean presumably through their genetic engineering it's like basically what nowadays um people are saying is that you know the amount of information that can be stored on dna if the dna is sort of let's take if one and zero is for binary code that computers are using if we converted that into dna mm -hmm. 
we can store quite a lot of data. So it feels like as if that sort of information was stored in their genes. And it's very mm. similar to a computer-like memory. I mean, I don't think it, it's not directly implied that they have like a, not here at any rate, that they have a, a, a genetic, like a, a DNA-based basis for that information transmission right so i suppose it 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 could be that their sort of neurological structures that would represent the memory are just being formed as a result of you know some sequence that's in their genes right so it's inherited in, in that way it's not necessarily implied that they're kind of able to read and experience a memory directly that's stored on a piece of dna as such as it were the, the degree of indirection in the representation of memory by genetics is not made clear there well i think well it depends because i mean the whole ship is uh may is alive so in the same time hmm. being able to store some information in uh, like an organic matter um should be ca- should be capable for them so i guess it might be in the case that that actually is being stored in form of some maybe more stable form of dna or some some compounds that basically act like storage modules and also i think people generally don't appreciate the information density of dna right ah uh, yes, yes uh, crazy amount of data in a ridiculously small space with um genetic material um i wanted to quote something um a calculation done um about uh, male ejaculation <laughs> i don't remember uh, oh, the yes. values yeah yeah yeah, yeah. something like uh, like what was it some some number of huge number of terabytes of data is, is the equivalent in the... i think it's not even terabytes i think we're talking about petabytes of male, like i mean it could be in the like i maybe on the 1.5 ish exabyte range would be <laughs> so yeah I, I think there is a I, i'm sure i mean nowadays the I people mean, the, are the, trying to the make... calculation is pr- you, you well for starters you got to convert from base two to base four, and then you got to. So I mean, every individual cell has a copy of the human genome, which is three point two gigabases. So you double it for for binary, so that'd be um, uh, six point four. And there's two copies of the genome, so it's twelve point eight gigabits. And then you divide that by eight for bytes, and again by a thousand twenty four for um, kilobytes and, and so on for, for mega and giga but yeah you end up with i think it's a few hundred um uh, actually probably it's, uh, be about what 1.4 gigabytes maybe i have to check my math but uh, per du- deployed genome something like that yeah so it's but, it's just basically a gigantic amount of memory um, yeah and that's one cell yeah Right. So, and then, um, um, and we have in the body something like ten to the fifteen cells, which is fifty trillion. So basically, cons- we are walking you know, super hard drive. <laughs> yeah, ridiculous information density. So I think there might be something there, but maybe we'll learn something more in the next um, uh, next chapters. Yeah, at some point we might get more detail about uh, the mechanics of that. So we left. Uh, we're left with the idea of the memory of this previous divisions being ingrained in his memory. But the one thing that they cannot do is to go back to their own planet. And as Jedaya described, it's like going back to your own womb. Uh, but he also wasn't sure if it still existed. Yeah, which again implies a long timeline, right? The, the, they're remembering something 
that's on the order of billions of years ago. But it's, I mean, it's, I, I mean, the whole idea of the ship being such a gigantic being, and then all the biomass necessary for it to grow and sustain. I mean, it feels like to me that the reason why they can't come back is that because the planet was exhausted, all the biomass was exhausted just for them. Ah, uh, that's distinctly possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they. It, it seems like they'd have to basically eat up a huge amount of resources into the the ship from whatever planets they're visiting so that they can maintain that environment mm. with you know presumably with very minimal losses to space and with some kind of you know solar input um to keep the energy ticking over you mentioned solar input i wonder if the ship itself is capable of absorbing energy from the sun because i mean that's what the plants do like right he well he described mm. i described the ship as a nor animal or plant it's both but at the same time it's more than that so maybe that it's possible that it gains some energy from actual um you know uh energy I mean, yeah, from, the from the sun yeah i mean it's ultimately the source of energy for basically all organism processes yeah. right yeah um, it would make sense to have some degree of ability to absorb uh, radiation from the sun and use that Although, of course, you'd have to be able to store quite a lot to do long interstellar trips, right? Because you'd have a, a long period between <sighs> stars. I didn't think stars. about that, that, the whole interstellar travel as well. How do they do it mm. if it's an organic ship? Mm. Like, I mean, it, given their long life and their apparent you know, transgenerational memory and so on, the prospect of doing sub-light speed generation ship type travel between stars is distinctly possible right they could they could set off and arrive a few hundred years later or a few thousand years later in neighboring star systems and not be all that bothered to be honest yeah i was i just realized that maybe they don't need like faster than light sort of or at least speed of light you know um travel because in fact for them it wouldn't matter the whole um uh, stasis that they were keeping, you know, Lilith in, like that. Also, that yeah. um, that might be enough for them to sustain them for, you know, as you said, for thousands of years before they reached mm. the, whatever system they were trying to aim towards, and maybe that's yeah, enough especially for if them. the ship can be intelligent, right? So presumably, it would need that to do some kind of navigation calculations. I guess so. Or also maybe just running like life support so if, if a lot of them went into stasis in between stars then the ship could be you know, an intelligent supervisor my head hurts just thinking about this just like the possible solution <laughs> for this my god it's a it's a great um a great way of doing that uh because i mean in many ways all of the kind of concepts that we have for engineering through sort of you know the hard science way of doing a generation ship is very biomimetic Right, it's trying to create a kind of contained mm. ecosystem with all of these like mm. control systems that can look after uh, stuff happening on the ship in between times and maintaining those kind of equilibria. You, you simulate that sort of homeostatic state of um, the environment that we live in yeah, here. Yeah. It's, and just having an organism that does that is great. That solves that problem. Speaking of the space uh, travel... Um, Taya tells mm. Lilith then that the humans are incapable of uh, space travel. Um, even though Lilith said that, yeah, we did manage to do it. Um, but he says that we wouldn't survive long. 
And he says that because we have a mismatched pair of genetic characteristics that when Uloi first perceived that made them repulse, the, it made them feel repulsed from us and then they became obsessed uh, with our uh, beings. And when prompted what it was, he said the following. First of all, it is our intelligence that, that you know, we are probably the most intelligent species that we found so far with a good start in life sciences and even genetics. But our second characteristic being hierarchical is a problem. He says, uh, mm. Chitai says that this characteristic was like a cancer for us because our intelligence actually served it instead of guiding it. And, and also we took pride in being hierarchical. And that was the problem mm. that and the cause of everything we were doing and our end. I think a quick point on the the notion that we were incapable of space travel. I think it's not necessarily just space travel, rather creating like a spacefaring civilization that was sustainable in the long term that they were saying we were incapable of doing. I guess what he was um, referenced to is that if there was a hier clear hierarchy um, built, I don't know, maybe on this sort of interstellar journey and then there's another society grown and then there's one society back on earth that was the original one and then when they both finally actually meet um who's the leader mm. there will be a clash again yeah, and then inherent conflict potential in that way of organizing things yeah mm. interesting and finally we learned the price that humans will have to pay for all that onkali did for us uh one was the cancer the, the one of the pay payment was using uh, giving them the cancer in a way, the Uloi said that they see great ability yep. in it, that the growing in it in their own bodies can stimulate limb regeneration and and controlled uh, malleability to allow to reshape themselves and look more like the partners in trade. But Lilith mm. realized that he called it a trade, and when she prompted him about it, he told her that our species will crossbreed with theirs in a, in a way that we will gain their abilities and they will gain ours. And this, mm. uh, he said that the hierarchical tendencies will be modified so they will disappear uh, while we'll be able to regenerate and more, look more like Onkali. Obviously, that would make mm. anybody angry because it basically is yeah. um, getting rid of, against our own will, what who we are. Um, but yep. Daya tells her that this urge to trade or share their genetic code is so ingrained in them, it's like breathing for us. Necessary, a must. And the process cannot be stopped, but Daya gives her an opportunity to not to be a part of it in a way that if he touches, if she touches his tentacles, he will sting her and that will kill her painlessly. And even though she thinks about it, at the end she can't do it. And then Shdaya stands up, tells her that he will meet his family and the rest. Uh, and when asked what would you would you would you have done it, uh, he says in terms of killing her, he said yes for mm. you. And that's where the chapter ends. Mm. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack. Yeah, there. there's a lot of here that we want to discuss and unpack. So let's um maybe go back a bit and discuss everything sort of we will come back to everything in in this more of like yeah. organized manner because there's a lot we want to discuss and when i was reading this chapter I was like oh my god i was like giggly it was like oh this is going to be a lot of <laughs> nice topic to uh, to converse about and also it means that this chapter this recording may be two hours long at least <laughs> distinctly possible 
<laughs> so I wanted to go back to that living organism that the ship was, right? Because we already discussed it yeah. quite a bit, but I was just still wondering what is the source of the nutrients for the ship? If it's such gigantic organs, right? Any gigantic organism. Um, I mean, the bigger the organism, the slower its functions are. So generally speaking, yeah. So like elephants, whales, the the general they live so much longer, but they're they're like the um heartbeat, the everything is so much slower. The pace, the of, pace of life is slower. Mm. And obviously, a ship that is floating in this in this, um in the um uh, not void but uh vacuum, vacuum, of, vacuum space. of space, you know, it mm. doesn't have to do much except for just once propelled, it will just move forward. But then all those things that happen inside, you know, like producing food for their own Kali and stuff like that and sustaining them like that all required you know it's sustaining whole population so mm. where does it where does this you know source of the energy comes from where how does it produces it so obviously sun is one source of the um I mean you know there are um I don't know if you if you listeners have heard before I saw it but there are this great um, this guy, uh, I think it was America or UK, that he put a massive glass bottle and put some plants in it, grass, and then he uh, add some water and then he locked, it, like closed it, like hermetically closed it, and those plants survived, oh, yes, you know, this uh, enclosed mm-hmm. ecosystem, right? So it might be mm. in that form that you know because the diversity of their genomes and the, like the different, you know, they are capable of sustaining it, but then mm. if they take on like extra things like humans, right? So what's what's needed for life to happen is flow of entropy, right? You have you have to have some ordered source of energy coming in to convert it into a disordered uh, state going out. Right? Interesting stuff only happens in that mid space when if it's too high entropy or too low entropy, then there's nothing interesting going on. It's when there's a flux through the system that you've got something like life can mm-hmm. occur, and that that whole. Um, so you'd need an input from some source or other, but you can you can then maintain that for a long time on on you know, stored sources of of ordered energy, right? So if you have, I mean, we do it with um, hydrocarbons, right? All of our uh, petrochemical industry mm-hmm. and so on, and oil, right? We we've got that's all captured sunlight that was photosynthesized into and then digested into or stored as oils in some farms and fossilized effectively. So it's all dead plants um, in a very concentrated, energy-dense form. So you could do the same thing, right? You could either process a large chunk of material from a planet or you know, a lot of light coming in from a star and render it into something like you know, oil or um, you know, starches you know, in, in plants and so often that kind of energy store oils more energy dense i guess so I mean, you it's so there. you think that they store the energy in much more uh and higher energy sort of materials that they later they use it for later usage but then that's still it's but starts still non-renewable source in a way oh yeah yeah i mean it would have to be non-renewable between stars right so if you're, if you're doing a long trip there's there's, there's nothing in the between for you to but you have to store a bunch of energy because mm-hmm. there's no source of it there. So you'd have to, in the proximity of a star where you've got access to some, you know, uh, some flowing energy, you can store it all um, or exploit an existing store, right? So you can come across a planet where there's a bunch of pre-stored stuff and process that into something that you can 
release slowly over time, or you can use the sunlight directly. Mm, to I guess so. Store it, but yeah, there's uh, there's not much else. But yeah, uh, I suppose you could have. I mean, the only place where you get higher sort of energy density than just chemical bonds is like nuclear stuff. So you can do you know, fission or fusion to release. That'd be interesting. A nuclear fusion or fission in an organic ship. Yeah, that would be challenging. Which is why my mind immediately went to uh, like uh, fats, effectively, because they're kind of the most straightforward energy. But then there are some. They, there are some bacteria that been recently found to actually thrive on radiation. They use that radiation energy to actually. Um, to digest that radiation, radioactive material, and actually use it for their own um, benefit. I mean, as far as I'm aware, I think it's either a bacteria or a fungus that can effectively photosynthesize gamma radiation, mm -hmm. but that only constitutes a small portion of its energy input. It still needs other. But more well, but when you think about it, sources. it's just one way. But you know, we have gamma radiation, oh, and yeah. you have the solar energy and everything. So it's just. Hmm. A lot of different sources that can sustain maybe mm. the whole ship. Yeah, uh, if you're taking in radiation from from the outside and, and using that to convert to stored energy. Actually, speaking of radiation from outside, because space, you know, the reason why um, it's so dangerous for humans to travel in space is also the radiation, because you know there is no ozone mm. layer that earth that earth has to protect us from that radio dangerous radiation that's out there in the space <laughs> i wonder how that is you know how the ship structure addresses um that you know like yeah. I how mean, the, like the the crude way of doing it is just having a very thick outer shell and as it's alive there's probably a lot of water involved uh, and you'd need large water stores um for a long-term space trip so there's way people think about it quite a lot is just have big water tanks around the outside of your ship and then you've got a pretty decent radiation shield because yeah i mean it absorbs effective. quite well this is why for example yeah. but obviously um um you would never be able to do it because before you would happen you will be shot down but in the nuclear plant there were the ones that have um the the swimming pool like pools where you the pools of water that you could swim where the uh, engine like the core is and you wouldn't you, yeah. nothing would happen to you unless you get close to it too close to it but on the surface swimming with it in it will be fine but before you would even get close to it you'll be shot down by the soldiers protecting it but hey <laughs> that's the only way to Probably, you know yeah. that's the way to die I, I would not want to go swimming in a nuclear reactor like spent fuel rod storage pool just even knowing <laughs> even knowing the physics even knowing it is safe everybody's saying get... it's safe nah not yeah. happening <laughs> yeah and i mean that is kind of like you know the, the it, it's still you're still going to get a decent radiation dosage right from um probably not so much from uh gamma but from particles that might be leaked and dissolved in oh yeah water. it's probably possibly if there's uh, anything dissolved in the i mean it's with anything yeah. the concentrate if there's no move movement in the water but still eventually the gradient will of the molecules dissolving will reach the surface yeah. and i'd be more worried about alpha and beta radiation from uh dissolved particles of, of radioisotopes in the water then i you know the, the the gamma has you know that predictable decline with distance that would be you know, like 
declines with the cubular distance or something, yeah. right? So yeah, and that, you know, the water's helping with that, right? So that's that's okay. But if there's a floating the molecule somewhere near your body, then that distance is basically cancelled out, and yep. you have mm-hmm. you get the full um, hit of the mark particles. And if you ingest it, then and it ends up in your bloodstream somewhere. That's just you got an isotope sat there spitting out unpleasant basically is this like if you had a gun floating a miniature gun floating in your uh, blood and then just shooting every possible direction simultaneously and causing damage and you can't stop it yeah the different types of radiation have different degrees of effect right so the 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 gamma stuff is more penetrant so you know those bullets will pass through a lot more but they tend to do slightly less damage when they hit Mm. you um, but then you've got the the alpha and beta radiation that are they're actually relatively easy to stop. Like say, so, you know, a sheet of paper will protect you from of what? Um, Sorry, say again. Beta radiation. Oh, beta. A sheet of paper. Uh, right? No, yeah. alpha is, it, is to, paper, but beta requires a bit more, like a I think uh, mm, centimeter yes, of yeah. like at least yeah, aluminium right. foil, um, foil of like yeah. that. So yeah. Yeah, you're right. The alphas, the the hydrogen nuclei, effectively helium nuclei, effectively. So you got the um, yeah, they're a little bigger, easier to stop, but they do more yeah. damage. It's when like they being hit. hit by a cannon, um, basically. You have a cannon in the form mm. of the alpha particles, the beta particles, like a normal gun. Whereas um, gamma, I would say, I don't know, a long range BB gun. <laughs> I, I suppose, yeah. Uh, but there's that kind of weird counterintuitive relationship to like the. The penetrance, so the gun analogy doesn't quite work because, like, in a way, it's a very simplistic way to describe it. But so the the ones that are easier to stop do a lot more damage when to whatever it is that is stopping them. <laughs> is effectively, the, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think you know. Let's. I I think let's move on because I think maybe there will be more. I hope there will be more in the book about the about the. Um, Ship because it's 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 a really fascinating thing and I hope that we'll learn more about it uh, later mm. on. Um, but I want to discuss about the culture of Don Kali, the the Dinso Toat and Akjai. Like I, yeah, I think this is very interesting because it's sort of. Although I suppose the word culture is interesting there because it it might not be necessarily cultural; it might be biological. It does seem to be implied that it's a familial. Yes, thing. this is something right. that. Um, I would say if for this cases, um, for the Onkali in, in the book, I would use culture with a bit of um, step back because this is not some, especially mm. when we were talking about the whole idea earlier about um, memory, rem- remembering, you know, those previous Oh, the transgenerational you know, like memory. This, this, mm-hmm. this as well might be the same because, um, you know, the, the whole idea, some of them are staying behind, some of them are staying on the ship, and some of them are going on the new ship, too. It's like, hmm. I think what Taya called it, like, a asexual organism, basically dividing. It's just, hmm. um, it's, some of it just maintains in its original environment, some of it are gonna spread to look for a new environment to live, while... Um, and continue traveling while the other one stays in the newly discovered environment to to to, to you know to grow and um, evolve. Yeah, it's literally sort of three way um, like uh, strategy, it's like this a very a efficient with strategy, three different isn't approaches. it? Yeah, um, be- yeah, it covers a lot of different yes, bases. Yes, yeah. because it's one hmm. you 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 take 
you, you, you use the current environment you discovered, the original environment mm-hmm. traveling continues traveling as it was, and you yep. bud out, make new sort of um, budding sort of look scouts, I would say, that look for mm. more uh, environments to, to look into. Yeah. So spreading the bets across those different um, possibilities and presumably the those who go forward on the on the existing ship will have very little genetic interplay with the humans. I guess so. so you know, yes. if that doesn't work out, then you've got another line that won't be descended from the humans. So every time they have this kind of trade and merger thing, they do that um, with a conservative strategy as kind of a, a backup, as it were. Which is interesting because... When Chitaya mentions that um, when they were saying, oh, you no, know, his generations, maybe, you know, descendants will meet with those generation, uh, those other um, descendants. And basically, yeah. they're probably at that point, they will exchange that sort of genetic information um, at mm. that point. It kind of implies they might have, uh, this is, if this is their asexual reproduction mode, they might have a sexual reproduction mode effectively where they meet another fork of their tree as descendants and they might do a, a trade with that other fork huh. as it were and do the same split again but just with themselves rather than another mm-hmm, species mm-hmm. but from a different branch. That's a, that's a good point. I haven't thought about it. It's like that they are doing... Um... In two different ways, but yeah, but that actually basically makes them their survival the highest sort of priority, and also the high, like very efficient survival mode. Yeah, it's very robustly built into their their biology. Effectively, that this this strategy will will keep some form of them going very reliably. Uh, yeah, uh, it's, it seems like I mean, given that they've evidently been doing this for long enough that their home world may no longer exist uh it seems to work yeah i mean you know they survive but at the same time it feels a bit i don't know sad in a way for me because you Mm. those who well i mean in a way it's like settling your world you you move out you emigrate Mm. because of many reasons and then you you make your own family and it's fine but at the same time your old family stays where it originally was and even though there's still contact, there is still some, uh, for you at least, there's still some, I think mm. there will be definitely some longing uh, after your family. Um, whereas the new generations who've never met them probably will never, they'll make their own families, their new friends, the new, new environment, and uh, maybe they will not, and they'll not have the same sort of attachment as you did. Yeah, and there's no sort of implication that they are in active current communication with these other branches of their sort of extended family right it seems that they carry on effectively in in isolation yeah from it's one like another, separate colonies which, basically hmm. which kind of goes to the whole no faster than light thing uh in this technology because uh, that uh, pr- it creates an inherent limitation and isolation on any group because you, know, you can't exchange signals between them at, at range faster than light so trying to communicate long distance is highly impractical unless you have a position established in advance 
for thousands of years where you know one another are going to be exactly, so you can send some radio signals. And I think this is a great point where we could move to the next point about the, what Chitaya said about humans, the intelligence-based hierarchy, because this is, I hmm. think, will lead to, really lead to what society, the civilization of Onkali is, because... He says that, uh, you know, humans, they have the problem, the hierarchy, that we establish hierarchy that to, to function. And then our intelligence sort of, instead of guiding hierarchy, sort of sometimes serves it. Which, to be honest, is fair. If you look at the current situation in politics where we have the hierarchy and people not as intelligent as they should be on their places where on the highest positions. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily characterize it as a problem of hierarchy, but more of a problem of incentive alignment well i'm just generalizing here now because at the Mm. moment it's uh just in those two perspectives because then Mm. the question comes down to onkali how do they function right so is there no hierarchy yes i was thinking more of like being it like a direct democracy where everybody has their own say in every decision they make Mm. interesting yeah because it it does very much this is a heavily implied question of you know, if humans are hierarchical and the Owenkali think that's a problem, what is their system of governance? How do they make decisions? How are they organized? If they say there's no leaders, if it's like if, if when I was my prediction saying about the leaders, there's no leaders here. Mm. If everybody has the same mm. right, then they all have to have sort of collective, um, I don't know, in a way, meetings where they discuss all those things. And then at the end of the day, based on the agreement or at least majority agreement that they make the decisions, uh, hmm. which in, in their circumstances makes sense because they're so, the, the species live so long, the time span for the making those decisions makes no difference, right? The perspective of the time, for example, we humans, it's often the argument mm. against the direct democracy, especially when there's a lo- large population, is that it takes time to organize everybody, you know, making their own understandable sort of decision, that they have con- conscious decision based on the facts and, you know, all taking all the sides. Mm. Whereas and we only have like, you know, 100 years. Obviously, that would mean if we did apply that to our society, it means all the decision would be have to be taken slower. Yeah, I mean, for for their for their life cycle, I suppose it makes sense, but it would still be a problem in like acute situations, right? You know, if you encounter some alien entity and you're suddenly in a combat situation, right? They encounter some very different alien race that operates at a much higher pace and is you know interested in destroying them and taking their resources. Then you need that rapid decision making, which requires basically someone taking over. But this could be countered by a collective con- consciousness in a way, where yes. the, a collective consciousness would then respond to that um, much faster because mm. um, this way the organization would uh, mean that you know, whoever is responsible for whatever you know, um, designed sort of um, work they have, right? let's say protection or whatever, then they would basically make the decision based on their collective thoughts which would be fast, still faster than just waiting for everybody to agree on things. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's that's very interesting speculation. Is, is this forming part of your predictions? Uh, to be honest, I didn't um, even think curious. about it until we started talking yeah. about this. Like, it just came to my mind now. Mm. And um, um, I just realized that the 
it just reminded me of the singularity thought thinking about like when hmm. when will humanity uh, reach the singularity thinking right where the predictions hmm. of people thinking of, oh our minds will collective will become a collective within the next hundred years or something and i was just just remind hmm. I, I reminded myself of that when we were just talking about this now so i don't know it has interesting implications for individual autonomy though um returning a little bit to some of the stuff that Lilith is kind of experiencing and finding out all this stuff is that she's very uncomfortable with a lot of all this in the way that especially this whole thing of creating effectively hybrids between humans and um the Oankali she has this kind of like nightmarish image of like medusoid children um and you know she's kind of you know, very alarmed by the prospect of effectively humanity ceasing to exist as an independent separate entity and become a part of this Oankali gene line that's just hybrid. I think this is the big sort of um, part of this chapter, the biggest sort of reveal in this chapter, the whole idea of the trade mm. that you're referencing to, that, that basically mm. that the, the Oankali are trading themselves, but it also means they're taking the species into themselves and they're giving themselves mm. to the species, meaning that the whole crossbreed yep. cross breeding um, situation. Mm. And it's interesting there because it, it actually that returns to something I said earlier in that that or that we were thinking about earlier that whole split they do the three way split where they have one fork effectively that carries on as they were mm -hmm. previously. They're denying that to the other species that they're integrating, right? Then they're not permitting humans from having their pure human fork separately and make, you know, see if that plays out well. Uh, they're, they're saying you can only have the hybrid fork. Highway or my way. Yeah, well, that makes sense because, yeah. you know, the whole thing is like, it feels like they, oh, we studied to observe the humanity like for, you know, whatever time they were observing us and they were seeing us basically mm. nuking each other and killing. Mm. So in their own minds... They decided, okay, so if humanity humanity is allowed to do what they were originally doing, they will come back to the starting point. That is the yep. wars and the destruction. They have a distinctly paternalistic attitude towards the humans. It's like, you know, you, you clearly can't figure this out on your own, so you're going to be part of us. Which also, I would say, is a bit of ironic because they're saying the hierarchy is not part of their society in the, but in the same time they're mm. applying their superiority in a way to other species mm. to you know to to lead them and that's a hierarchy in there yep so it's it's i don't know if the if it's the author's sort of um purposely maybe it's it is purposely done this way to sort of Oh, the hierarchy of the humans, but in the same time applying. It's ironic that the Uncali that don't see this, they're doing the same thing. Perhaps, although I think it might be a little subtler than that. In that, there's there's often a kind of um, the the truth kind of gets in the way of the narratives of hierarchy frequently because, like it, it is sometimes the case that the person in the like position of power is right on the facts. And that is inconvenient from the perspective of the narrative, like a, a privileged position for the person in the position of oppression. Right? They have they have the the ability to know certain things likely better than the people who are in the position of power because they have um, 
you know, direct experience of it. But there are other things where you know the fact of the fact of the matter is on the in the five on the side of the the people with power. So that that tension that exists between this kind of um, what is in fact the case mm-hmm. and the the structure of hierarchy, I think is there's a, there's a sort of deeper commentary there coming from from the author. That it's not just. But then again, the whole idea of the of the author, right? She is a hmm. black American at the time she was grown. Mm-hmm. She grown up at the time where a lot of things, you know, a lot of racism that was still present. So mm-hmm. it might be also a in in a way a description of what it felt like in her so- oh, in yeah. society I mean, at I the time. There's, there's there's definite echoes of the whole power relationship between the the, um, the whole sort of slave master relationship between the or, or oppressor oppressed relationship between the Owen Carly and and Lilith in particular um uh, and the rest of humanity in that whole in the whole structure of this book there's a lot of explorations of the dynamics of that relationship and it's, it's interesting in the, in the well that Lilith is a very self-aware character mm-hmm. uh and that, you know, when when you see her first come out of that cell and um Jedi is kind of needling her she notices that that's what he's doing and then later on when she notices that she's dependent on him to feel comfortable in the space with all the other aliens right she like grabs his hand for comfort uh, and but at the same time she she recognizes that this is something that he has established right that's this is a deliberate technique to manipulate her into being dependent on him for that comfort. But then again, he it does feel like sometimes that he actually genuinely cares about her. It does yeah. feel like you know when he when he discussed things when his man, attitude and mannerism and you know the whole mm. ending idea of like you know that yes he would kill her for her if she wanted that like it, there is a sort of it's um, it's it's yeah it's, it's definitely a, a complexities there you get a lot of echoes of like um. Uh, I know there's um, and in in twelve years a slave, there's the nicer slave owner who's kind of decent to the guy who was captured and you know returned to slavery in that in that uh, who wrote that account, and he you know he he comes off as somewhat sympathetic, but he doesn't go far enough to you know free the guy and put him back to his his life and, and free you know the rest of his life he still owns them but he's decent to them as opposed to the guy who owns other slaves but is you know monstrous yeah to i mean it's it's so it's not a, exactly uh, a full on freedom but there is some sort of sympathy i guess in him yeah there's definitely this sort of uh, I, this one of the things i i like about this book and one of the things i enjoy in fiction generally is is moral grayness mm-hmm. um I find you know, it's a lot of an exploration of those kind of mm, uncomfortable areas of, of moral philosophy, and that that's very well uh, addressed there in, in a lot of this stuff here because you get these these complicated power relationships where there's kind of there's there's clearly this element of that Shadia uh, does seem to have genuine affection for her, but there is a serious power asymmetry. And she has very little control. And this is what, like, um, I find it's still confusing, right? And this whole setup, I don't know where the, I cannot think where the book is going towards, right? Usually, Mm. and any fantasy I've read so far is that usually you sort of get like, 
introduction to some some sort of a villain or some sort of background of the character that you are gonna follow up with or at least you get some background that you know what's gonna happen and here we don't have that we know that mm. the earth has been destroyed and they are want to help them and now we know that they want to actually help them in a way that they are gonna exchange their you know genes and um for our own survival and our own survival and our survival, but it's gonna be an assimilation type of um hmm. we don't have a conventional big bad yes, structure, yes. right? We don't have a, a, a you know an an enemy to be opposed in a kind of simple, morally straightforward fashion. We have this this complexity. Makes yeah, it it's very hard to predict. And you know, <laughs> the whole idea of like um the, the trade, right? Um it reminds hmm. me in a way, it's not like he said. It's like it cannot be stopped. It's like breathing for him, and it, it reminds me. It's not mm. really an evil thing in itself. It's mm. like the species survival, right? Why do spe- species like um, attack other ones? To for usually for survival, right? That's why we eat other uh, animals for our survival. Mm. In the meantime, why do we call you know like we have cattle and stuff like that? It's because sorry, not cattle. Um, why? Mm. Because it's for our survival. They live for uh, for our no being, but we take care of them. It's, it's the same. It feels like this very similar, like, and it sort of relates to like, uh, I mean, it feels to me. I wanted to mention this um, to Zerg from Starcraft or the Tyranids. Uh, well, the original sort of Zerg, the Tyranids from Warhammer Forty Thousand, where basically they're not evil okay. species as itself in a way. They are literally yep. live to to you know enhance their own to survive, and but but they but well, the Zergs in turn are evil in a way that basically they they they, they thrive on killing everything and they use their genetic sort of uh, makeup and the biomass to to you know enhance themselves and continue their survival mm. etc. But it's very similar but less aggressive manner where the the Onkali are trying to help them, uh, help the species to survive by offering themselves and. Sp- changing their genetic makeup to survive but at the same time Mm. it's the last sentence he said when you know you can live or you can you can you you will do this or you die he will you know it's it's offer of death or assimilation and in a way it's sort of it's a pretty stark choice reminds of colonialism it's like oh yeah yeah all those Mm. countries that you know in africa and other you know uh, South American stuff like that, like they were given opportunity to, to reach the same sort of civilization level as the European countries, but in the same time they were completely the de- the culture and completely de- uh, destroyed. Yes, yeah, completely sort of subsumed. And in the, in yeah. the, in a ways that basically are barbaric, you know, it's it it wasn't anything mm. nice or anything in the survival. It's mostly exploitation and and it just feels to me that. Even though this doesn't feel like a full on exploitation yet, it mm. has this. It has this sort of it has the potential to go that way. Yeah, yeah. And the the other thing that it kind of echoed for me is is um like a collaboration with um mostly in the context of like Nazi Germany, but also in um uh, I don't know, like the the Stasi and a whole bunch mm-hmm. of other contexts where you know, you've got 
people choosing death or not necessarily always death but like serious social opprobrium of one sort or another from you know not joining up with the nazi party or whatever you're kind of an, an analogous situation in, in that context as well it's a very gray area isn't it because uh, during the mm. times of the nazis like there are some people who completely opposed them or escaped uh, because they mm. didn't agree with them some people pretended to join them while trying to help the oppositions to all the you know people who are um especially jewish people and um to to survive that that onslaught um mm. some of them collaborate because that's the only way for the for them to survive uh which yep. is to be honest perfectly fine yeah that's that's that's, that's fair enough right you know if, if, if you can't fault someone for a certain amount of self-preservation. I mean, you know, in, in most cases, if you have a choice of mm. your family surviving and some random stranger, I mean, a lot of there's a lot of people would su- who would choose their own families, understandably so. And mm. but then there comes the fact of like trying to survive and actively helping in this situation. Yeah, they're doing good from the inside yeah, situation. So it's, the whole, it's the matter um, of like you know, Oscar Schindler matter of like helping scenario. the Nazis. Right, or just trying mm. to survive while you know being under the occupation, and that's I think that's as big as the the distinct distinction that was necessary to mm. uh, point point. Mm. And here we have that um, the idea of just to connect up. So the, there's a similar narrative, not just from collaboration, but from you know, the, the context of slavery as well. The whole um, uh, sort of Uncle Tom scenario is a very analogous situation where you have like. In, initially the character is portrayed as kind of being noble um in his like non-violent resistance to the oppressors but then as the narrative becomes more uh, and the zeitgeist shifts to kind of a more violent and more um forceful opposition towards um you know the, the, these kind of obviously wrong oppressors mm-hmm. the character of uncle tom is no longer kind of lionized but seen as um overly submissive and overly um you know willing to sort of suborn themselves to the to will of the oppressor and and, and and you know participate in the like oppression of their own people and mm-hmm. that kind of thing uh, so there's a it's very interesting how all that's perceived especially over time when the moral zeitgeist around the things like you know owning slave shifts so you know when, when the time when it was perceived as okay and morally acceptable and people did it and then you've got the time when it was being seen as wrong and then you've got the time when it's being seen as so obviously wrong that you should just you know there's no question about it you should immediately resist and it kind of doesn't there's that middle kind of era where I I think there's there's a a slightly more realistic perception of it because in Lilith's scenario to take it back to the book she she can't do anything about this situation, right? She has no power here, and the same thing was was true of you know of many slaves at the time, right? It, it it's basically impossible for them to actually do anything to change the systemic nature of the problem, right? So it doesn't make sense at that point to have a narrative of strike down the slave masters because it's just unattainably far away. It makes more sense to have a narrative of eke out what we can. What you just said. Just makes me realize what the book might actually be about, because mm. 
I've just realized that the whole concept, because she needs to sort of, um, her job, uh, Lilith's job will be to help other humans to assimilate with the, or get used to the um, Onkali, right? So hmm. her by herself, she can't do anything. But once they all are, the humans are bring back to, you know, to the ship and, you know, like getting used to it and there's growing, growing population of humans. Eventually when they land, first land on the earth, I feel there might be some sort of um, realization that what whole situation is and finally fighting against Don Kali that are actually on the earth with her. That means including Chitaya and his family and whoever else is going to be the older Dinso uh, that will join. So mm. I feel, and now I realize that where the book might be aiming towards. <laughs> okay. I should probably stop yeah, talking. Yeah, let's maybe let's talk. I I feel like I might actually because I I I may cause you to spoil oh. something. <laughs> yeah. Um. So okay. Yeah. This this whole topic about the assimilation, cultural assimilation, and it's it's quite. It mm. I f I feel it's gonna be quite yeah. um oh. a a prolonged topic and um a theme that's a recurring theme in the in this book yeah i think that's, that's definitely a recurring theme i think um we'll, we'll we'll see that as it comes but there was another kind of a point related a mm-hmm. little bit to that um on the um the way that the owen carly are kind of a, feel biologically obliged to do this right it's something that they they once the process is started it can't stop and it's like breathing for them but at the same time they have that uh, the, they have the genetic engineering mm-hmm. ability. Um, so for me, that the kind of there's a, there's a tension there. Like if you have a preference for doing something a certain way, but you also have access to something that would let you modify that preference, it raises the kind of meta-ethical question. Why didn't of they? What should my yeah? Why didn't they be? remove it? Like yeah, it makes no sense. Like yeah. So it implies either that there's a limitation in their ability to genetically manipulate their preferences. Or that they have, for some reason, made a choice, not to remove a it. deliberate one, to maintain this way or of working. Or it could be that there's some things they, they can't remove that's even more in-depth, like, um, ingrained mm. in them. So, for example, there's some things, in, like, imagine a system, a computer system, you have the access to, like, the main stuff, and if you're an admin, you can have stuff, but the very core functions are unavailable to you because just purely due to safety hmm. of the system and um, and safety of the user. Um, so I wonder mm-hmm. if that might be it might be like that, that some functions are not available to them and maybe even like going back to their planet, maybe they're not allowed yeah, to go because, the, the, for example, the, the purity of that code, that original code is preserved and ingrained in them so mm-hmm. they don't go back so that um, that purity is not put in danger. In a way, yeah, I guess it's an interesting one. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it has a lot of echoes of the whole AI control problem question. You know, the notion of creating a, a sort of unchangeable component in your source code or some uh, something that will be stable over time, where you know you can't go against this imperative. And I'm dating back to the whole like laws mm-hmm. of robotics, ro- <clears throat> robotics concept. You know, you have this you know you you mustn't harm humans kind of imperative, right? Uh, but what if, what if like eliminating humans is the way to not to harm humans because they'll do it themselves? Yeah, but also how do you how do you maintain that preference stably over time, right? So if 
yeah, if you encounter some scenario where it you know it, it doesn't work out that it, uh, like you said, you know, that it becomes a problem uh, for some reason other to follow that rule in a that rule can effectively gets modified by that by reasoning mm-hmm. process, right? Is there a way of actually successfully protecting it from being modified by reasoning processes? And if so, um, is that actually a good idea? Because you know, unintended consequences of those rules and so on. There's, there's a whole whole literature in the AI control problem that relates to that. The, the sort of maintaining stable preferences over time of an artificial intelligence system. It's very analogous to the situation you have where a biological system has access to its Mm -hmm. own source code and can edit its genetics, right? You have that that same problem of how do you maintain stable preferences over time? uh, But also the the broader problem of what those preferences should be in the first place. Yeah. What should you want to want? (laughs) So uh, this is the interesting part. Like, I think... Uh, I wonder if the next few chapters of this book or maybe the next books, but when, if they're going to encounter, like, this, explain why is it so imperative for them to do so. I mean, you know, they could have just simply hmm. take that cancer or and just let the humanity, drop the humanity on the ground and that's it. But then yet they have still hmm. that survival. I don't know, it feels to me that like with the ability to modify your genome to present mm. and you know because the, the problem is with them well let's put put names in humanity problem with the incest is the problem it causes produ- production mm. of um gen- genes genetic modifications that uh there's a lack of diversity and it causes mutations there's an increase of mutation chance so for example the base best yep. example that are, is out there is the hemophilia in the royal families right mm. Where basically, oh, yes. because of the interbreeding to preserve the royal blood in the part of commerce, um, was because was cause of the hemophilia appearing, right? Hmm. And it stopped the moment that the, there was a crossbreeding between different families, and this is the reason why there's a danger yep. of um, uh, incest, uh, incestual uh, breeding because. The eventually, maybe not the first generation or second, but eventually there start to be a problem of increasingly frequent occurrence of uh, genes that otherwise, you know, in the general population, probably not going to be an issue. But when you get two copies that are, have a problem, which is much more likely to occur in a yes. smaller gene pool, then you know the disease prevalence from various stuff can creep up. And there's there's also the opposite effect: the whole um, hybrid vigor thing of outbreeding can generate more um vigorous offspring um i think that there's an element of that here it's still preferential because it allows for the um preservation of better sort of development but anyway what i was trying to say is that Mm. um being a being that's capable of modifying your genome in such a way that um it is not it matters not with the you know we have incestual um, uh, interbreeding or stuff uh, or similar matter like that. Mm. That's a good and point. And yeah. then you mm. go from a planet to planet and you meet different species, and use their genetic code to sort of develop yourself more. But by the time mm. in the thousands of thousands of thousands of years that you know like the technology as humans right, we already are developing mm. quite substantial genetic development at least for in our perspective nowadays and in thousands of years 
whoever mm. is going to look by is like, oh my God, these are like primitives, obviously. But like, in their, in, for perspective on Kali, the capabilities of like what the, the abilities to what they have to do shouldn't matter to them. You shouldn't need that sort of um, necessi- necessity to sort of interbreed with other species. Because you can make it yourself. You can generate the life yeah, from scratch yeah, because you, you have the ability. Yeah. If you know what, if you know what the problems are, you can just remove them. When because I mean, there's the whole discussion of like when the Uloi creates offspring for the Oankali, they do kind of a much more conscious genetic engineering kind of selecting yes. characteristics yes. for the offspring, um, uh, which could definitely involve you know. Okay, these mutations are a problem. We should get rid of those um, and have these much more, uh, you know, robust copies of these genes, or whatever. That um, just to connect up to the the cancer thing, um, and that they do they and um, uh, Steyer describes them as powerfully acquisitive, so that they're, they're trying to get new stuff. It seems to be their imperative. So even if it's even if they're not just um, they're not satisfied with just not having a, you know, genetic mm-hmm. diseases and so on. They want new abilities. They want to acquire new genetic information to have in their their kind of, um, I don't know, their their recipe book. I, I think suppose. this is what it comes down to the ideas. I think it's not that they, uh, they need some extra genetic code. I think it's more of like they need more ideas what to do. Yeah, hmm. and I think that also relates to the thing that they said about. The humans being one of the most intelligent species that they've met, I think there's a there's an element there of perhaps, whilst the the Alankali might be a bit more kind of intuitive mm-hmm. in their thinking and a bit less systematizing. Ah, I see what you mean. And they might not necessarily be super good at taking what they've learned about the genetic engineering and like extrapolating to develop new and and, and previously un. Um, unseen mm-hmm. abilities like de novo without having seen them somewhere else they like they kind of they just acquire it and then use it rather than necessarily inventing it from scratch well yes you mentioned that because uh, they, there was he Tyus himself said they were like children playing around with the the possibilities there mm. are with the cancer and um yeah which, which actually reads to the final point i wanted to discuss uh from why i've got it was the uloi mm-hmm. and the cancer because Chitaya mentioned that the cancer was one of the payments. He found the wall. He found it so fascinating, and he said that, "Oh, hmm. you know, the, the ability to regenerate limbs and being malleable, so that you can they can uh, they can change their form, so that um, they are more like the species they want to trade with." And I found it a bit strange. Maybe because it's the lack of the knowledge from the author to use cancer as an example of this. I mean, cancer is a good example of mutations happening, but not really good example of regeneration. Because regeneration doesn't work like that yeah. in humans or in general in our world, right? And this is where I wanted... But there are better solutions than that. So, yeah, in our bodies, right... Um, that, well, in our world, there's uh, other organisms that are really good examples of, like salamanders, such as axolots, that are capable oh, yeah, of yeah, growing whole limbs, right? And um, if you if they lose a limb, um, the stem cells in them, the cells that are... So, so, before I continue, stem cells are, for the listeners, 
uh, cells that are capable of one self differentiation so they can differentiate into the cells that are necessary for the body and that they can replenish their own um, population that's what that's the definition of the stem cell and what happens in the axolots or any other organs that is capable of uh, growing their own limbs is that those cells uh, once the damage occurs um, are started to be directed by the chemical cues like Einstein describes in the uh, the ship that it can, you know it can do things that by if they're chemically induced is the same uh, concept here the there are some factors cytokines um, that are directing the cells to, to the wound and basically through a certain gradient of those uh, um, those uh, factors the cells start to differentiate and regenerate the bone tissue, the muscle tissue, the skin tissue, etc., and the mm. blood vessels and the nerve tissue, right? So there is a possibility in there. So I think this is possibly lack of the knowledge of the author on this. And the, at the time of the when she was writing it, the cancer was the probably the most innovative thing because, I don't know, maybe it is the time where they made the immortalized cells, uh, actually, in fact... To be a bit charitable in that regard, as I think the so the the notion of um, uh, cancer has a lot of you know, stem-like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. properties, right? It has it has that kind of capacity to become other tissues, and, and there's a particular type of cancer called a, a teratoma, where you effectively end up with all kinds of different tissues that are effectively adult mature tissues, like so you get like teeth bones hair um inside of a a tumor and that um so that that capacity to to go from you know an adult cell adult cell kind of back up to that stem-like state and then back down into the differentiated state of all the different tissues that kind of plasticity i think is um probably where but that's coming it's from still related to stem cells because stem cells um the whole idea of Mm. so one of the tests for stemness so how good the cell is producing Mm. different sort of types of tissue in our bodies is the teratoma test where basically the cells are injected into for example a mouse and see what they're happening so a lot of embryonic stem cell uh, stem cells so the cells that are capable of pretty much producing every possible tissue that is in our body and um, this is the test. You produce teratomas. Uh, so the idea of cancer, yes, that's correct, but that still comes down to the stem cell. So I don't know whether the idea of um, stem cell at the time when she was writing the book was available to her or whether it still occurred. I don't, what year was it actually? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, oh, the, the, the Yamanaka paper for induced pluripotent stem cells... Was... That, that wasn't a long time ago. That was two, we were talking about two thousands, wasn't it? Was it? I can't remember if it was the nineties or the two thousands, but uh, I think it might have been late nineties. I'd have to double check. Let me check quickly uh, here. But yeah, it, it's definitely after the book was written. Two thousand six. Two thousand six. Ah, okay. oh my god! Yeah, so later this paper has twenty three thousand yeah. citations. <laughs> yeah. Uh... Wow. Yep. Uh, discover induced pluripotency and you get a lot of citations. Wow. So, but mm-hmm. the first mm-hmm. sort of immortalized cells... Not not so much immortalized as in that 
in this context, just the ability to induce mm-hmm. stemness manually, as it were. That's yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Thing. So Yamanaka but. was the injury, but I'm thinking about the cancer in perspective. Of cancer. Where was the first uh, immortalized cell line? Oh, the most, yeah, that's the Henrietta Lacks stuff. Yes, Hela the Hela cell. So, what year was that? Yeah. Um, hmm. Do you know? No, hmm. I read the I read the the book on the subject, the Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, which is very good, but I can't remember the oh, dates. Oh, so the first the, the cervical cancer cells taken on February eighth of nineteen fifty one from Henrietta Lacks. That's where the Hela cells uh, hmm. come from, and the yeah. so nineteen fifty one. And then um, these were immortalized around 1953 and, uh, and after that. So, 1950- so this is a time where the first cells were immortalized. So we should probably clarify a little bit of what that means for people. Do you want to go for it? Do, do you want to? Okay, so basically those cells um, were the mutations in them were caused them to continuously grow. So they're capable of growing mm. non-stop. And that idea of um, being able to replenish constantly allowed for them to basically proliferate non-stop. Which is a big deal for our ability to yes, culture yes. cells. Right? The, the whole reason that we sort of that, that stuff was uh, worked on was trying to grow cells in a Petri dish and indefinitely. And that also involved that those cells, and me meant that those cells would not undergo the normal functions of what cells are. Because after a certain amount of divisions that cells undergoes in our bodies, mm. they either go apoptosis, that means cell death, and they will basically be gobbled up by some immune cells and reused, or they will go senescent, which means they will go to sleep, I would say. it's uh, You can describe it. That basically they will just they'll just sit there, do nothing, but they're still there because they're necessary to sort of Make 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 up the three dimensions, right, of the organ. Yeah, they also secrete a bunch of cytokines and stuff that are. Um, there's a whole senescence-associated secretory phenotype that is a. Uh, those secretions are a source of problems in aging. But basically, that's what they do. They do nothing, and the immortalized cells. Yeah. Don't do that. Like they they don't go. They just keep growing. They just keep dividing, which is much. Which is much more like cancer, right? You've got the um, that constant growth and proliferation, but it's uncontrolled. Right? The the primary problem and the thing that I think that the the Owen Carly would in many ways be like more interested in is the control of what. So it's not just getting back to the stem state, which is what you often get with some forms of cancer or the induced pluripotency. It's the getting back down again to yes, something yes. useful. And the the redifferentiating along the same patterns that you had during development, which is where the the axolotls and a lot of these other organisms that can regenerate limbs or whole parts of their body, that's where they have the um, something mm. that we're really interested in, which is that capacity to take an, a part of an adult organism and recapitulate the developmental program in such a fashion as to yield a, a new adult limb. So recently, um, in 2019, uh, sorry, there was a um, paper on a subspecies of a flatworm called ASOL, and they basically um, characterized the genome of that um, uh, flatworm. And there is a reason why um, I mentioned it, because that worm, when cut into half, is capable of regrowing both head and body. So it's hmm. 
it's Which very unusual, unusual and it's it's sort of it's it they were capable of um describing why um uh what it happens and it basically came down to um induction of these factors that called pioneering factors these are fact transcription factors to, uh, that are capable of stimulating gene X genes to express that they were originally expressed when um during their birth right so during the embryo embryo formation so this is very very important to like and a lot of those pioneering factors were uh, are present in humans so now this study mm. sort of allowed to describe which yeah. sort of what we could do in ourselves so if we lost a limb can we stimulate cells that are in our bodies with those same fire pioneering factors to regain our limbs so mm. i think this is this is but this is also makes me another point that i was thinking right richard so the onkali mm -hmm. took the humans right to um to yeah. look, look into that to to their genome but humans you know there's one of trillions of species out there like you know those flatworms mm. and the axolotls like if i was uh, a being that capable of doing this i would send i don't know maybe several of my kind to go on the uh, mm. earth and just collect every possible species they can find and then try to analyze analyze them well, I mean, they do mention that, you know, they've changed some of the environment, they cleaned up, and then some of the species now are a bit different to what they, you know, the animals that originally may be not so dangerous now are a bit more dangerous, like, because they modify them. So mm. maybe that the earth that we know as, you know, as and Lilith knows that is completely different now. But, um, and it's possibly mm. that, but the focus of the cancer, I think, is a bit, I don't know. I think that it does kind of make sense in the whole because before the mm -hmm. Yamanaka factors thing, people like the the goal was fixed on getting like stem cells, getting pluripotency, yes, yes. kind of getting that, getting getting that ability, and then the we kind of neglected what we do once we'd figure that out. The problem of getting them to to do what mm -hmm. we want subsequently. So I think that, um, and that that's you know frequently a, a problem, right? We often have you know we have some goal that's like the prerequisite requisite to doing some other thing and then we we've achieved that goal and then great, yes now yes what? yes uh, okay now there's a we've got a whole load more hard work to do that's a bit more complicated than we were bothered to kind of work out in detail before we had this mm -hmm. prerequisite to, to doing the rest of the figuring out so I, I can make it i can see how that would be the focus um you know, getting to that point um and then slightly neglecting the now what? <laughs> yes, I I think this is a good point because sometimes in science, um, to our dear old listeners, we have you you do a project like let's say imagine, and the project is very interesting to you, but and you continue doing you you spend your time in it, and then somebody comes in with some much better novel idea of approaching uh, a similar problem, and basically your project mm. uh, gets just shoved under the um carpet and forgotten not that it was incorrect mm. it's just there are more efficient way of doing stuff that was originally yeah. in place hmm. yeah because you, you you don't know beforehand which of those paths is yes. going to pan out so you have to try a bunch of them and occasionally you end up working on one of the ones that didn't pan out in fact more frequently than not you end up working on one of the ones that didn't pan out because 
there are more ways to be wrong than there are ways to be right. About <laughs> well, I mean, that's science. Are, it's basically so, you're wrong, yeah. wrong, 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 yeah. and until you get something right, and then you get even more wrong, 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 until you actually, you know, get to the point where it's yeah. satisfactory. But hey. Yeah, some poor bastard spends their entire life being wrong. No, that's um. unfortunate, but that's <laughs> life in the same time, you know. Yeah. It's it. Yeah. yeah. And other lucky people get like a streak of uh, great ideas, or, or talented, or, or smart people. You know, luck also. And figures. to be honest, this is this people is what PhD is. Everyone, anybody who is listening and thinking about doing PhD, if you're lucky and the project is and whoever is organizing the project and you know is has a good understanding and it's not like oh just to get you no know, things doing being being done then you're mm-hmm. lucky because sometimes a lot of projects are not followed up at all because there are just there's no it's it's a dead end you know mm-hmm. but i mean it's it's not that it's dead end is like oh it's not worth it doing it that's absolutely not. Cor- that's un- it's not correct. Uh, not the correct occasionally, yes, but it's not. But it's not a correct way not. of thinking because every step we take in science is necessary. It's like being building a puzzle. You know, you, you take a puzzle and you try to fit in this way or this way and this way, right? It's it's a multi-dimensional puzzle, I would say, and you try to fit it as much as you can, and you build up the image, and then as you build up the image, it's sort of makes starts to make sense so you start off go back or you you, you change these three things and so that they make clearer image although i just to point out one of the the, the uniquely distinguishing characteristic of science is its ability to turn mm-hmm. that lens on itself so what what we learn is what works as as like better ways to approaching answering those questions you know experimental methods and so on so effectively better search algorithms for the truth right the, the ability to explore more efficiently the space of mm-hmm. possible answers and get the right one um and the ability to to spot sooner when we've gone off down a bad tangent so and we often we, we fail institutionally to to ad- adhere to the best practices that get that most efficient uh exploration of the tree so occasionally we end up with projects that are genuinely not the best way of doing it because you know we know or we, we should know better than yes, to try yes. it that way. Um, it's not going to work. Um, Sometimes the human subbeast is the one that causes yeah. it. It's, 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 in, it's inefficient sometimes, but uh, yeah. And, but science knows that and is aware of it, and the circle closes and it does better in future, hopefully. Yeah, so I think this is I, I think this is important, and I think this is uh, this is what makes it a bit different to what any other sort of matter like in life that science really we try to sort of make it as it it needs to follow certain logic and step by step and it has to be reproducible that's what's more most important science it has that special strange loop property that self-reflective component that sets it apart from any other uh, uh, sort of epistemic approach that's Mm. what makes it different from any other sort of a attempt to to know things systematically about the world is that science looks at itself as a method of knowing things about the world and improves on that component of itself that's sort of twisty eating its own tail type structure it has its problems but it's still the best thing we have and i think maybe 
Yeah, and I think maybe back to the Onkali, like the Uloi, maybe the, the, that's the what you mentioned earlier is that, that the lack of the that systemic approach to things. The possibly, possibly. We, we don't know yet, or maybe we'll know, maybe not, but like the idea of trying a lot of things, you know, and but it's interesting. It's it's the idea. I, I, I'm very curious what's going to happen next chapters about this because it does work as a way of like the, the inefficient approach brute that forcing perhaps it. they might be taking right it, it it's just it's yeah it's, mm-hmm. it's grindier right you have to you go down more dead ends but they do get towards the truth and like the evolutionary process in general is a massively yeah, successful absolutely, example absolutely. right like, it's just making completely random changes most of which are like terrible but occasionally it hits on one that is you know that works and that gets retained um so the like their their process here is very biological. It's very evolutionary. Like they kind of go around picking out these things. It fits very well with the the whole sort of uh, aesthetic of the Oankali, the whole picture. Yeah. Shall we finish? Yeah. So in terms of the predictions, um, I have only two to be honest at this point, um, because I wasn't certain where this will go. Honestly, because it left such a broad topic and a lot of discussion on like the the whole aspect of the Onkali and the whole future earth and the humanity that I literally I was like oh my god where is this heaven heading hmm, there's a real opening up of yes yes so it doesn't really yeah. lead like no step by step anymore it's more of like oh now what's gonna happen so I know that definitely Chitaya uh well sorry Lilithville meets Chitaya's family that's that's where it led to mm-hmm. And I think this yep. is what that's one of my first prediction. And the second one would be like that she's trying to get used to her new place and living between those beings um that were her captors. Mm. Uh captors. But I don't know. It's just I don't know what next. Because I earlier we were discussing with you like what's what be next the aim of the book. And I think it's gonna be the whole humanity versus the Onkali and the changes that they apply to them, right? But Hmm. It's still unknown, right? This, I think this will be the main topic, yeah. like the theme behind it. But what happens to the next chapters, I don't know. This is the end of part one, womb, and the next part, her family. Ah, the next thing they call is family, you said. Yes, family. Oh my yeah. god, so it might be actually the next few chapters about her living in the in the ship and then basically getting uh, known her other humans that basically form her family. I'm just gonna not say anything. Well, yeah, let's don't say anything because I can <laughs> already tell that something is on your mouth. But like, um, <laughs> but anyway, I think we've exhausted this quite substantially. It's a two-hour episode, and I think um, yeah. we've talked a lot. So okay, let's uh, let's sign off. Uh, I've been Richard Acton. Uh, Mike Blinker. Thanks for listening. Thanks everyone for listening for this two-hour-long chapter. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, you can find us on xenothesis.com. We have the we are on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, and YouTube. Bye. Goodbye.